Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with Kevin Norby. And Kevin's going to be discussing with us a very important topic that's affecting a lot of golf courses in almost every region of the country, flood control. Kevin has extensive experience in this area, and he's been able to provide a number of solutions to his clients to help control the flow of water on golf courses. But before we get going with Kevin, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts and initiatives, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're fortunate to have Better Billy Bunker on board, and we're also glad that Kevin was able to take some time to join us. Well, Kevin, thank you very much for joining us. We're excited to have you on the podcast. The first thing I'd like to ask you is that you're based in Minnesota, which a lot of people don't quite understand or know that golf is very popular in the upper Midwest. Just explain the excitement people have when the weather starts getting nice in the end of April and just how much excitement is there for golf in your region? Well, I think you're right, Guy. I think... um... You know, people here in Minnesota, they think, you know, it's it's winter for eight or nine months out of the year up here, and we never thaw out, and how could you possibly be playing golf? Um, but, yeah, we've got a lot of golf here, and um, I would say our normal season probably runs from April 1st. I, I actually played golf last weekend, so uh, on Saturday. So we've got courses that are still open here. It's a little bit unusual, but, yeah, there's a lot of excitement for golf, and I think that might have been... Um, that might have been exemplified, you know, with the Ryder Cup. I think they had great turnout here for the Ryder Cup. I'd be surprised if we didn't get it back at, you know, at Hazeltine National again in a in another decade or so. Um, I'm based here in Chaska, Minnesota, so I'm just Chaska is a suburb of Minneapolis. I'm about 40 minutes southwest of Minneapolis. Um, I actually am just about a mile from Hazeltine National, so I have a small office in downtown Chaska. What was that like when the Ryder Cup came to town in 2016? I just finished reading John Feinstein's new book about what happened at Hazeltine. It had to have been an exhilarating experience for everybody in the community, and I can't imagine the, the traffic and some of the, the, the logistical backlogs. It really transforms your entire city. Um, I mean, we're talking about closing roads down, making one-way roads through town, um, the, just the security, um, having such a large event like that. Um, all of the restaurants and businesses were trying to take advantage of people who were going to be passing through town or staying in town, and, uh, and everything was focused on golf. I mean, they put banners up on the highways, bridge overhangs, and um, there was all kinds of you know specials and coupons and, uh, and all kinds of things. So it, it, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, we've had two uh, PGA championships you know, since I've lived here in Chaska, both of those at Hazeltine had a couple of other pretty major events here and of course we have the um, the seniors event uh, every year you know up in the north metro so uh, yeah it's good we're uh, um, we're kind of nuts about golf here i guess and we do have a lot of golfers um, i think as you mentioned earlier per capita probably the uh, the most golfers anywhere in the country so as somebody who grew up in the upper midwest how did you get involved in golf and explain your route to getting to where you are now well i got involved in golf uh, kind of late. I grew up, um, as I said, in a small town in southwest Minnesota. You know, our, our family didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have enough money to go play golf, and I didn't, you know, I wasn't on the golf team. So my first round of golf actually came in uh, 1983. I was a senior in college, and I was going to school at uh, University of Idaho, Moscow, Idaho, 
And my very first, I was just telling somebody the other day, my very first round of golf was at Pebble Beach. Um, we went out there on a field trip, and uh, we ended up out on the golf course, and we were going to take a tour, and they let us play. So somewhere I've got uh, a video, or excuse me, a, a photograph of me in uh, white bell-bottom pants and a mullet and an orange golf ball. So <laughs> Uh, from there, uh, I, I played golf with my dad a little bit. He kind of introduced me to the game and gave me my first set of clubs. And in 1990, I met a golf course architect named Don Herford, based here in uh, Minnesota. He was a fellow with the American Society of Golf Course Architects. And um, I've told this story before. He had recently had a heart attack, and he needed some help finishing a project, and I was introduced to him. and. We became, uh, we became good friends and eventually became business partners. I worked with him for, uh, for 10 years before he passed away in 2011. That's how, I, uh, that's how I got introduced to the game. What attracted you to golf? Was it just the, the scenic beauty of being at Pebble Beach, or was it, was it something else about the game that really drew you to it a bit later than maybe some of the other people in the business? I think my first round of golf at Pebble Beach, I, I still didn't really have an appreciation or an understanding of the game. I think it was really what, what attracted me as a golfer was sort of the challenge and the competition and, you know, just sort of the competitive nature probably that I have. Um, I think as a golf course architect, I, I was schooled as a landscape architect and a land planner. What I liked about designing golf courses um, as introduced you know, by Don Herford, was that you could look at a, a large piece of land and I think design something that sat gently on the land. I mean, I consider myself an environmentalist and I consider myself somebody who, you know, who really uh, cares and appreciates, uh, you know, the environment. And what I liked about golf was that you could do something that didn't, you know, require you to um, completely change and, and you know, and devastate a piece of property, much like you would with, you know, housing or roads or commercial uh, development. So you could take 150 or 200 acres, it got done, it, it, it looked like something that had been there for a long, long time. So um, that's really what attracted me initially was sort of the environmental um, sensitivity um, and preservation, you know, that aspect of it. What was your first project? What do you remember about your first project? And... What things did you learn taking landscape architecture classes helped you along during that project? Well, my first 18-hole project was, again, a project that I did with Don Herford, and it was in southwest Minnesota. It was a little course called Stony Creek. Um, we actually ended up, um, it was being built for the city of Renville, and it was a beautiful piece of property. It had a big wetland kind of running through the middle of it, and they actually gave us three pieces of property, and we got to walk all three of them and look at you know, which piece of property we thought we could build a golf course on that would be most successful. Um, and I think what I remember was, again, exactly what I talked about, how we kind of put that golf course sort of gently on the land, and um, we, we reestablished a bunch of native prairie. It was just a, a beautiful golf course when we got done. I had a, I, I had a lot to learn, <laughs> I discovered after that. You know, when you start looking at the strategy of the course and playability and landing areas and, and the contour of the greens and the, you know, the spacing or placement of the tees, I discovered that I didn't know a whole lot about golf course architecture at that point in my career. And so um, 
I really sort of made it a mission to to travel and to see other people's work and to go visit other courses and and I still do that today. I, I, I love traveling. Um, we've got some friends that I travel with and we don't always play golf, but you know I'm always looking at what other people have done and what other people have done well or not so well. Um, and I think I learn as much from seeing you know golf courses as I do from seeing you know courses that, that maybe didn't turn out like they could have or should have. We're going to talk about flood mitigation here on this podcast, and it's interesting that your first project involved the use of wetlands. How important are wetlands to golf courses in some regions, and what are some things you have to think about when designing around them or through them? I think it's pretty hard to find a project these days, certainly in the upper Midwest, um, that doesn't in some way um, involve you know, impact or mitigation or creation of wetlands have, as you know, in Minnesota and Wisconsin and even up in North and South Dakota, lots of wetlands and lots of little what they call prairie potholes. And regulations today, you can't just go and fill those in. Um, You have to work around them, and if you do fill them in, then you have to mitigate and create new wetlands. And you also have to create buffers, you know, to protect those, and all of those things are good for the environment. They you know, they enhance, uh, enhance uh, habitat and water quality and all those things. So seem to do a lot of work on projects that are in some way impacted by wetlands or, you know, even flooding. Um, we just completed two projects here um, for the Minneapolis Park Board that were closed um, after, well, after torrential rains in 2014. Um, and uh, we just opened one of those courses, and the other courses still, you know, got some challenges, but um, we're, we're kind of working through a plan on that. So, How much do you think about the possibility of flooding when you start working on a golf course, and are there more projects today driven by flood control than they were when you got into the business in the early 1990s? Yeah, I think there are more projects that are impacted by flooding, and I think largely that's a function of, you know, as, as populations increase, um, you know, we've got all the runoff coming off of houses and roads and streets, and, and that water's got to go somewhere. Normally it's, you know, it's dumped into a stormwater pond. Well, golf courses are oftentimes, even if they weren't built as part of a housing development, they're oftentimes built on that sort of marginal land, um, particularly in an urban setting, you know, where development has sort of grown up around them. So like the two projects I just mentioned, I mean, those golf courses are over half of those courses. Uh, acreage um, is floodplain. And so one thing that we are seeing a lot of these days is we're seeing cities and counties and park districts and watershed districts are talking about, well, where can we find more stormwater uh, storage? Um, and oftentimes, you know, they're coming to us and saying, you know, we'd like to take this golf course and do a big stormwater management project there, and how can we reconfigure the holes, you know, to uh, to accommodate that. Um, the other thing I think that's happening is that, you know, with global warming, uh, I mean, I think we're seeing more storms of greater intensity, um, including hurricanes and, you know, all the stuff we saw this year, um, I think, you know, we have to somehow be able to deal with that. So here in the Midwest, we're seeing, we're not seeing hurricanes, of course, but we're seeing greater frequency of tornadoes and storms. 
and um, you know, down in the coastal areas, we're we're seeing the the hurricanes and having to deal with that. As golf course architects, we're you know we're often charged with trying to figure out how we're going to put these courses back together. When you're thinking about flood control, sometimes you have to think about more than the golf course. It's a vital part of a community's flood control plan that the, the land the golf course has. It sounds like a ginormous undertaking. Where do you even begin when you're working with a golf course and homeowners and the community at large? As an architect, how do you start that process when it's so big? If we're just designing a golf course from scratch and we're not, you know, and we're not in a floodplain, we're not really, you know, we're not really looking at potential for flooding unless, again, part of that land is, is sitting in floodplain. Some of the projects we've been doing recently where we've been asked to come in and, you know, repair a course after a hurricane or after a storm, um, that's, a, that's a huge undertaking. I mean, FEMA, uh, back in 2000, I guess our first, uh, our first foray into, you know, flood-damaged golf courses was a project in Colorado where they had just had 11 inches of rain um, up near Boulder, Colorado, uh, and it washed out a number of uh, courses. It took out streets and bridges, and FEMA came in. Um, interestingly enough, uh, about a week before that, FEMA issued a bulletin that said that they will now pay for the restoration of grass and trees as long as it's part of a municipal facility, meaning soccer fields, baseball fields, golf courses, that sort of thing. A week prior to that, if that had happened, there would have been no funding available to fix that. And actually, on, on prior um, you know, disaster events like that, the only money that was available from the federal government to fix those sort of facilities was for things like fixing their pump house or maybe fixing a bridge um, or the clubhouse or the maintenance facility. Today, FEMA will actually provide funding you know, to rebuild your bunkers, your greens, your tees, washed-out fairways, um, and so we kind of we've kind of carved out a little bit of a niche, I guess, because you know we've done done a number of these projects working with the federal government to try to get these courses back on track. Um, and I think it's something that a, a lot of course owners and a lot of superintendents are, aren't even aware that there's funding available out there, and so they they sort of take on these projects on their own um, when in fact they could you know get some financial assistance. So, and that's where a golf course architect comes into play. Right, Kevin? Well, absolutely. I, I, I'm not sure that all golf course architects know that that funding's available. We happen to know it because it's, again, sort of a little niche that we've carved out. But I think the first thing that has to happen is that the, the governor has to declare the area um, a national disaster, and so the funding is actually available, and then FEMA will come in. But then the next thing that has to happen is that a golf course architect or somebody has to do an assessment of the golf course and figure out, you know, what what elements on that golf course were damaged and what's the cost to repair those elements and so we look at the irrigation system we look at their drain drainage systems were flooded um, we look at bunkers we look at cart paths grassing fairways and and, uh, and rough um, and obviously it's different if there's water running through the site as opposed to you know just torrential rains so you need to look at that, and then you, you put together an assessment, and then you apply for funding, and then you find a contractor to do the work for you. After Hurricanes Harvey and Irma, there were a lot of golf courses 
in Texas and the Southeast deciding whether to rebuild completely or just kind of fix what the storm destroyed. How tough is that decision for for a golf course? And what are some things that the uh, the owner and the superintendent and the general manager should consider when making that decision? I think the um, the, the kind of knee jerk or initial response is to get the course open. And so, of course, the maintenance staff wants to get out there and pump the water out of the bunkers and pull the sand out and put new sand in. And and as soon as you do that, well, you've given up your ability to get funding and to maybe completely rebuild that those bunkers, you know, and put bunker liners in them and, you know, and regrass them. I mean, if, if you're looking at a golf course that's been, you know, 20 or 30 years um, and probably needed bunkers repaired or replaced anyhow, you know, this is sort of the the prime opportunity to get somebody else to pay for it. Obviously, it's the government, but um, I, I think the initial response by many superintendents or many owners is to, you know, is to just hurry up and get it done, and we'll have our guys do it in-house. But it's a, it, it can be a monumental task, um, lots of work, and and it may not get done right if you're trying to use in-house staff, um, or even if you're trying to use a contractor. Now you're paying somebody to do it. And you could be, you know, you could be getting funding, uh, a grant program, essentially, from the government. We talked about working around wetlands. What is it like working around a creek, especially a creek on a golf course that had recently been flooded? What are some of the challenges of that? And how can a creek also help make a golf course architecturally interesting? As golf course architects, I mean, this, the thing that we're looking for when we're, you know, we're assessing a site and trying to decide whether whether or how to build a golf course on that property. We're looking for, you know, a piece of property that is attractive and has, obviously, it has enough space um, that you're not going to have safety issues, um, has some sort of a natural feature, whether that be a wetland or a series of wetlands or a creek or some sort of, you know, rock outcroppings, some woodlands, some grasslands. So I think when, you know, when we're working around a creek, we're obviously trying to preserve that, enhance that, um, maybe make that part of the, you know, the golf course, the overall uh, character of the golf course. It might even be the centerpiece of the golf course, like Augusta National. Again, we're limited to some degree by the Army Corps of Engineers and the Department of Natural Resources on what we can do. It's certainly less expensive to work with that, you know, piece of property than to try to change that piece of property. Um, it's pretty easy to make wetlands larger, and, and that's something that's um, it's actually looked upon as being a positive thing by government government agencies. So I think it's a difficult thing. I think it's a matter of understanding the regulations and working with the site, um, you know, and, and using those, um, those site amenities or site elements to enhance the golf course. What are some technologies that help a golf course architect when he or she is trying to control the flow of water on a golf course or prevent the flow of water on a golf course. What are th- some things you use now that maybe you didn't use earlier in your, your career? I guess we always look at, at, and I'm sure most golf course architects do, I mean, we always look at, you know, the slope and the topography. And, we're, we're, I, you know, my magic number is always 3%. we got to have at least 3% slope on a site. Um, but with steeper slopes comes higher potential for erosion. And so we use a lot of, you know, I guess what I would call hydro mulches and tackifiers, and so they're, they're wood-based products that you can spray on the, you know, the soil to hold it in place to keep it from eroding until the, the, uh, 
the grass establishes. We use um, erosion blankets. Um, we use what's called wattles. Uh, they're sort of you know tubes of straw. Um, pretty much just standard you know erosion control products. We we do look carefully at at grass selection too because uh, up here in the Midwest um, we can use Kentucky bluegrass, we can use ryegrass, we can use fescue. If you move further south down into Missouri or Florida, you know, you're using zoysia grass and Bermuda grass, and so you're looking at sprigging, and and so all of those grasses establish different rates. Kentucky bluegrass takes two weeks to germinate, whereas, you know, bent grass only takes, you know, four or five days. So the potential for erosion is much greater when you have, you know, when you're seeding Kentucky bluegrass than if you're seeding fescue or ryegrass. So we're, we're always looking at you know, how do we go about grassing these and what's the potential for, you know, a, a rain event and how can we use hydro mulches and erosion control blankets to stabilize the site until it gets, you know, gets established. What is it like as a golf course architect waiting through the first big rain event or historic rain event after you worked on a course? What are those moments like and what is it like when you hear that the course came out okay from a big storm? I've learned over the years that if I, um, if I get if I spend too much time worrying about whether Mother Nature is going to wipe out all the work we just did, I'll drive myself nuts. I, I've kind of learned to just take it easy, and it is what it is, and if it gets damaged, we got to go back in and fix it. But just try to do the best we can up front and protect the site and protect the owner's investment. So, And the project always turns out better if you know we spend a little bit of extra money up front you know, to protect the site. If we have to start regrassing and reseeding things, you know, the end product is almost never as good as it would be um, if we'd have done it once and done it right the first time. Uh, besides flood control and helping golf courses out with the flow of water on and off, and what are some other uh, projects you're working on right now, and what are some other uh, things going on in the, the business or movements that really interest you? We've got two projects right now that um, we're working on. One is in Florida, and it actually did get hit by the hurricane down there when uh, we were under construction. We came through pretty good. We had to do a little bit of uh, repair on that, but we've just finished that project. And then the other project is up in North Dakota, and that's a completely different setting. It's very arid environment. We had, I think, three-quarters of an inch of rain all summer, and so we have to rely heavily on uh, irrigation, and we have to even use irrigation for dust and, and wind control. And so but those are fun, exciting projects. The project up in North Dakota is going to be really interesting. It's an 18-hole project. We're using uh, sort of a wood bulkhead, you know, treatment that I that I first saw when I was over in Ireland uh, about 15 years ago. Um, they were using these wood bulkheads at the European Club to um, to make sure that the bunkers were visible. Yet, because of the heavy winds uh, and the frequent winds. They use these bulkheads to uh, to make this to allow them to make the bunkers a little bit deeper and keep the sand in the bunkers and keep the the wind from blowing the sand out. And so, when we started this project in North Dakota, um, it was sort of a perfect solution to what is um, seems like uh, winds that never stop blowing up there. What's your favorite part of the job? What brings you the most fulfillment these days? I think I still get the most satisfaction from. You know, sitting down and, and working up the drawings, and then and then seeing those plans implemented. And I guess I grew up. You know, my father was an artist, and so I, I kind of got his uh, 
artistic bug, I guess, when I was a kid, and so um, I still do. I'm, I'm old school. I still do everything by hand, and, um, and that allows me to take the time and be patient and, and come up with these ideas that, um, that we later implement. And so to see those, you know, I think that's why probably golf course architects enjoy their job as much as they can, as much as they do, because, um, you know, we get to create something and then we get to see it built. Um, which is a lot different than maybe sitting behind a desk or, you know, or, or selling, uh, you know, something to uh, somebody who doesn't really want it. <laughs> How much patience does it take to be a, a golf course architect? I take it that a lot of things don't necessarily happen right when you want them to happen. A good case in point, I think, I think you're right. I mean, you do have to be patient. This project we're working on in North Dakota, I started working on that uh, in 2008. So it's now been almost 10 years, um, and we finally broke ground on it this year. So uh, it does take some patience, but again, I, I, I think the reward comes at the end, and when you see kind of the fruits of your labor and you see people playing it and you actually get out to play it yourself and, and feel good about, again, the way you sort of tread lightly on the land and create something that hopefully will be there for a long time and um, the owner will be happy because he's making you know, he's making money on his investment and selling homes or whatever it is he's, you know, his, his motivation was. Well, Kevin, this was great insight. We really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, thanks a lot you, for everything you do for everybody in the industry, and we look forward to catching up with you again. Yeah, I appreciate it. I enjoyed it as well.